Hello, and you're very welcome back to The Week That Really Was. For this week, uh, we're recording on the 20th of July, 2023. It's about 8 o'clock in the evening. Rory McElroy is making very hard work of the last hole at Royal Liverpool um, on the first day of the Open Championship, which doesn't bode well for his chances for the rest of the week. It's been a very wet week here, not everywhere else in Europe. We'll discuss that later on. But first, Sarah, how are you? Are you recovered from your rambunctious discussions with William Campbell last week? <laughs> yeah, just about. I have um, I was vindicated on the uh, Hillary Clinton comment, so I'm happy enough. Yeah, I want to um, say, we, we got a big reaction to it in being on, and it, I, I thought it was, it was very important, and we'll try and do it again, to have people on who disagree with us. I, I, I think William is somebody who's really worth um, listening to, even if you disagree with him uh, occasionally passionately, even if he annoys you sometimes. You should listen to people who you disagree with. In fact, he's very interesting both on his episode of his own podcast this week where he talks about procurement in RTE, um, which uncovered some really interesting things about how they're getting sponsorship from for cameras and stuff, which they weren't declaring. Um, and He does interesting work, and I, I thought it was good to have him on. The discussion got heated in places. But all good discussions probably should. So we must have a row at some stage, Sarah, on this show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why not? What was catching your eye in the news this week? Well, this kind of random, like a lot of people who listen to our podcast probably wouldn't have come across this story. Um, or maybe they would, but I certainly have. So there's this um, woman, I'm going to say her name correctly. Um, she, Carly Russell. Um so Carly Russell, it was in uh, Tennessee, I think, and uh, she went missing on Thursday night. Um, so what was interesting, what was kind of like interesting or kind of scary about the story initially, and I followed it from the beginning, was that she picked, she finished work, she picked up some food for the takeaway. She was driving down the motorway and she rang a friend and then rang the police um, and said that while she was driving down the motorway, she sees that there's a toddler in a nappy walking along the side of the motorway and she's going to pull over. Mm-hmm. And um, basically, whoever she's on the phone to hears her screaming and then the line that she's gone. And by the time the police arrive, there's no no toddler, no her. Her phone is still open on the ground. Um, I think she was wearing a wig because they said her wig was on the ground and something else like her iPhone or her iWatch or whatever. Anyway, so she was and, abducted. Um, so obviously they all think like this bait where the child was a bait to get her to stop at, at you know to lure her into stopping and that she's now gone and then two days later she appears at her parents house uh this is on saturday and then she did an initial conversation with the police where she said she'd been through this ordeal brought to a house a man with red hair and uh, they took photos of her naked but she managed to escape and um Basically, last night, our time, the police came out and did a press conference and said that their investigation so far had shown that she'd been searching how to go missing. Do you have to pay for an Amber Alert? Uh, The plot, uh, different elements of the movie taken and stuff like that in the hours before she went missing. They have her on CCTV footage buying all this food um, that wasn't in her car that she obviously took with her wherever she went and police are basically saying this is all an elaborate hoax and she's full of crap and it's ongoing but it's fascinating to watch because because the story did seem kind of like so dramatic and odd in the beginning that there was people like Candace Owens who came out in the beginning and said this story seems strange and they're all like oh black women go missing and you're just being racist and blah 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 blah. and so it's kind of a it's a 
it's a marriage of a load of hot issues in America coming together in this one thing. And it's really, really interesting to watch. So that I, I, is consumed I, by day. I'd imagine it's a fairly profitable thing to be the survivor of a horrible high profile crime in America. I mean, I would imagine that if you were to be somebody who'd been abducted and your killer, your abductors hadn't been found, it would be quite easy to get slots on. I don't know whether Oprah is still going. I don't think she is. But shows like Oprah and say how you live in fear that your attackers are still out there, that you can't sleep at night and become something of a celebrity and then maybe even build a career doing speeches about how to survive that kind of thing. They, they, For they, sure. They, I, and like, because the, the truth is, John, that like, like, and this is the thing that like, I'm sure is going to make a lot of people quite irate is that it's as grim as it sounds most of the time if you're a woman of a certain age who goes missing in that in any way similar mm. to that you don't come back no like you, you're not seen ever again so there was a huge kind of sharing of it on t- about her on tiktok and you know blah 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 blah. so i think that like yeah potentially like she could have if it was true she could have been super famous I don't know. It's I never say his name properly, but do you remember Justin Smollett? 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 Jussie Smollett. Smollett. Mm-hmm. And like he paid two Nigerian guys to attack him and throw bleach on him and try to apparently look like they tried to lynch him. Um, and then he concocted this whole story that it was a racial attack and um, it was all made up. And I think that like there's a, maybe there's a, I don't know, maybe there's a small amount of people who think that like being famous is the most important thing or I, I don't know, but it's, 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 it's further it, evidence I, that the world is completely, some people have officially left the reservation. Yeah, I, I'd argue that it's more than that. I'd argue that there's a culture of of, of, of victimhood as currency whereby yeah. if you, and I, I don't mean to get necessarily political about it, but if you look at sort of um the way we structure our society these days is is that there's a hierarchy of, of, of inverse privilege, so to speak. It's a classic um, example of the perfect candidate for political office being the proverbial disabled Welsh uh, lesbian. Um, mm-hmm. That, you know, the, the, the more minority boxes you tick, the more victimhood boxes you tick, the more respected you are in society and the more privileged you are, the more sort of wealth or the paler your skin the less privileged you are, and therefore there are a sort of there is a kind of perverse set of incentives to um, to claim victimhood. I mean, I, I, there was a spike shortly after Me Too. Um, there was a spike, uh, a small spike, but but a notable one in sort of false claims of sexual assault as well. If you remember, and um, there were a couple of high profile cases in the US and elsewhere of of people making false claims. Um, and I think that was, I think these things are inherently connected that there are some people, a minority of people, who desire to be recognized as victims and not have anything to do with it. And this seems, sounds to me like an extreme case of that. But I think it's also a, a, a like it's a, there's a range. And in Ireland, like at a much, obviously a much like smaller level, but it's the same kind of principle is that, you know, like you'll see politicians and they, they, they trade on their, like you know how 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 small beginnings you had the better you know how whatever sad story you have you, you walk to school on your bare feet and lick the floor for breakfast like that's what you will like trade you know what I mean and like I'd, I've often seen like politicians coming out and saying things like well you know like 
I didn't come from this and I I didn't like mm. go to a private school or whatever. Like I didn't go to private school myself, but I don't think there's anything wrong with private school. And I don't think that somebody is automatically more qualified to be, a, for example, a politician because they did or didn't go to private school. Do you mm. know what I mean? And it's like, you know, the the, the more like the more uh, victim boxes you take on your victim bingo card, the better. And that yeah. automatically kind of qualifies you to be a better politician. And to be honest, I don't think it's the only reason, but I think it's part of the reason why the standard is falling. I, I would agree. I would agree with that. And there's there are various conversations we have. We must talk about gender quotas some week on that in that respect. Not because gender quotas are not because I don't think women make good politicians. I'm talking to somebody who I think would be a fine politician. And there there are there are many there are many fine women politicians. But I think when you are picking people because they're women. Um, I think the average quality of an individual woman in politics occasionally declines, being really controversial here, which uh, undermines the cause of more women in politics. That's a that's my education. Well, it's, a, a, it's, it's actually it's actually worse than that because um, what happens is, and I'm not just talking about Fianna Fáil. I'm talking about across the board. And I've actually funnily funny you should mention this. Had a couple of conversations about this with people at relatively senior levels in politics in the last couple of months. And it's about the candidate, the gender quotas for local elections and general elections. And what happens is, and it becomes more and more and more cynical, and again, not referring to any specific parties, but I, I there, there are people, because they have to make that 40% number, as it mm-hmm. gets closer and closer and closer to the date of the election, the standard of what they need, because they lose funding otherwise. So mm-hmm. the standard of what they will accept as a candidate gets lower and lower and lower. And what happens is that in the end, and I don't mean to be dis- disrespectful to anybody, because I think like that people who shouldn't be running for office exist, obviously, in, in male and female form, but that people who have absolutely no business running an election end up getting claw-mossed and convinced to run. They get 100 votes and the baseline, like the baseline results and the baseline um, of women in general, like on paper, gets low, lower. Then stories start to emerge like, oh, well, women don't actually vote for women and women don't do that well in elections or whatever. Yeah. And this becomes the kind of narrative. And it's not true. Yeah. Like you, have to, you have to want you have to want to run for election, John. You know this. You have to want to do it. And somebody coming to you and saying, aren't you great now? You're a local teacher and you're this and you're that. And I know you're a bit shy, but it'll be great. It'll be great. You should do this and you should do that. Plum on you because they need their 40 percent because they need their money. And then you run and you get 70 votes. And like you never hear from them again because they don't give a shite because they used you to put your face on a poster to get their to, to, to take a box to get their money. And now across the board, people go. Well, sure, look at all the women who ran and they don't do well. Yeah, and that's you know it. I mean? And then the rest of us get blamed. We won't vote for women. Yeah. No, we won't vote for the, the person who you pulled out at the last minute because you needed to go from 39% to 40% candidates and hadn't the first clue what they were doing. That's, and then that's they say, oh, you know, women need to see more women. Okay, women need to see more women in politics. I agree with that. We we need more women in politics. Okay, theoretically, yeah, we need. We also need more business people in politics. We also need more people who have a large capital project experience for, you know, just to use the example that we've talked about on this prod- podcast before. We need loads of loads of things in politics. I used to say, I used to say, and I don't anymore, we need more young people in politics because I think that that's kind of a, I don't, I'm not no, it's like when Harris put the kibosh on that one for me. Yeah. No, also, I would I, I actually raise the age to be a candidate. I don't think you should be allowed to run for public. You can't run for president of the United States until you're 35, right? I, I think that's a good rule. Um, I think yes. this business of having young people in politics, if you haven't 
lived in the real world, it's very hard to represent the real world. That's my that's that's yeah. a theory. Now, when, now I'm a hypocrite here because I ran for election at the age of yeah. 28, 29 something. I'm glad I wasn't elected. I'd have been I, not that I would have been terrible. I, I don't want to sound overly modest. I would have been okay. But I, you know, I, I will not run again. But were I to run again, um, I think I'd be a, a much more better a better candidate and better. Yeah, I've, I've lived a little. I think this business yeah. of running for election in your twenties, um, with respect to some people like James O'Connor is in there. He's 23, 24, whatever he is. I'm not saying he's a bad representative, but I wouldn't like to see him in a senior ministry. Um, and I, I, I think I think the the youngest ministers in the cabinet at the moment, people like Simon Harris and Helen McEntee, are not covering the government in glory. Yeah, um, I mean, a couple, I, like, look, a couple of young people. We had this for years, though. Oh, we need more young people. We need more young people. We need more young people. I'm not sure about that anymore. I think that it's like lots of things. Like, you know, I'm a barrister. Like, does, you know, 23-year-old barristers, of course, and 23-year-olds can be excellent barristers. But for example, if you're getting a divorce and you've been married for 25 years and you're stay-at-home, you've been a stay-at-home mother and you've had three children and your husband's very wealthy or whatever, does a 23-year-old ever going to be able to comprehend the existential and cr- financial crisis that, like, the 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 absolute turmoil that your life is in? No. Mm, no. So there are some things that, you know, just age is better. But back, back to the point about women, I think that, like, when I look at a lot of my friends and, you know, women that I know and women who've become really successful or whatever, they're just not really that interested. And... That's unfortunate, but I think that over time, more and more women will become interested. But ramming women in, like that, get seventy and eighty and hundred votes because the gender quotas doesn't work. Yeah, it, I, I, they don't. A lot of them don't get elected. Um, yeah, and that's just and the, it's a, and, a, and it's a rod for women to be beaten with later. Oh, she's only here because of a gender quota, and she's a you know. Ugh. Anyway, we were talking initially about victims, and uh, a victim that caught my eye this week was the as yet unnamed American tourist. Oh, God. He's fighting for his life in a Dublin hospital after being set upon by a gang of three youths in Dublin city centre um, on, I think, um, Tuesday night of this week. Um, and it just struck me like, you know, I, 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 I just can't get over the sort of, obviously, horror on his behalf, but more embarrassment that that's where the country is at. Because we have um, this city centre in Dublin, that we have allowed to turn into an absolute shithole. Um, I was looking today for a piece that's coming out tomorrow because this is this is bothering me a little bit. That in the city centre between the canals, Sarah, do you know how many methadone clinics there are? In the city centre between the canals, no. There are nine. There are nine oh, methadone clinics. Yeah. Do you know how many there are in Ranala, Rathmines, Rathgar, Terenure, Donnybrook combined? There are none. Sorry, I didn't get a chance to answer that question, but I'm guessing you probably would have guessed none as well. Um, yeah. And it just strikes me that there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is that if you tried to put a methadone clinic, and I'm not saying the people who committed this particular crime were or were not addicts. I have no idea what they were. I'm just saying mm. the general principle is if you try and put a methadone clinic in a residential area, people will say no. And the reason they'll say no is because methadone clinics attract people who have massive problems in their lives that they tend to, not everyone with that problem, but a lot of them tend to solve by resorting to crime and other antisocial behavior. And we have taken the city center, the jewel in our national crown, the place that is synonymous with the country, the center of Dublin, our capital city, and we have placed um, a magnet 
for the people least suited to life in our society to draw them in there. Um, at the same time, drawing uh, driving out um, all the people who don't want to live in the city centre anymore. And it, it just strikes me that that's just one example of how there's been no thinking at all about the centre of Dublin. If you compare O'Connell Street to, I'm, I'm trying to think of major major thoroughfares in Europe. Like there's obviously the mall in London where all the national events take place. So you see the king marching down in his chariot with the, all the flags hanging down. There's the Champs-Élysées in Paris, entered in, Lin- in Berlin. Um, that's, no, that's Rambles in Barcelona. Yeah, all those places. They they have good. They they're they're very well policed. They're immaculately kept. They're 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 cleaned. They're a point of national pride. And I don't know how, as a country, we are not ashamed that something like this could happen to uh, a tourist. Um, in, in again, by the way, again, 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 and by the way, not just because he's a tourist. Happens every day of the week. Salts. Like you go on to there's a there's a Twitter account called I think Dublin Live, and all it oh, does yeah. it, all it does is post footage of scumbaggery happening by and large in the centre of Dublin every day of the week. There was an incident last week where there was a Garda who was just being verbally abused. He was on his own. He was being verbally abused by a person who didn't seem to me to be in his right mind um, on O'Connell Street. And then got assaulted by that person. And Cousin oh, Garda is this was the on. one where the guy the guy came off the bus? Yes, that one. And he just like absolutely rugby tackled your man to the ground, and it was so satisfying to watch. Is that it was, but, but why was that guard on his own? I know. Why was that guard and on like, his and, own? And by the way, in serious trouble, like in, in, in a spot of bother there, I'd say, on, mm. on, until that absolute legend came off the bus and was just like I'm not having this and just yeah, like wear, ended wear white the whole jeans, by the way can be said <laughs> yeah, I mean, you've got to be a bit of a legend to wear white jeans I tried it once didn't work <laughs> but like you've got to be uh, you know and 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 got himself up dusted himself down got back on the bus went about his daily business I mean that yeah that, no, that that was he was the only one on a public street come to the aid of a member of the Garda who was under attack and I think that says a lot first of all about the state of the city centre Second of all, about our pride in the city centre as a country. Um, I mean, I, I just don't think you would see that kind of thing. I mean, Paris and London have got their problems, right? They, you know, you, you take the train in from Paris, in, in from Charles de Gaulle, you'll go through some pretty rough areas. But the, yes. the, the centre of the city, um, which they regard sort of as like the advertisement for France, the internationally recognised, um, you know, the, the, the Arc de Triomphe, the flags, the Eiffel Tower off one side, you don't see that kind of stuff there. It's safe. Our our capital city is unsafe for people to come here, and we should be we should be mortified by that. And Helen McEntee should be ashamed of it. Yeah, and I mean, look, like even if even if everywhere else was you know equally or worse than the capital city that we had, it doesn't really matter, John, because this is our capital city, and we should give a, a toss about it. And we discussed it on the podcast a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, we definitely, I definitely had a couple of comments from people on Twitter saying to me, oh, you know, it's always been rough. Yeah, it's always been rough, but it's rougher. It's always been, had problems, but it has more. It's always been sometimes dirty, but it's dirtier. You know, it's always sometimes smelled like piss. Now it smells like piss all the time. Like, you know, it, it's definitely worse. There's a, there's a vibe, there's a feeling there, there's a, there's a, a menace to it. That's not, that's getting worse and worse and worse. And nobody, you know, I saw the minister comes out today and it was literally like, do they just change the name in the in the press release now? Because it was the exact same words as when the Ukrainian, was the Ukrainian who got his 
bitten and his head kicked in mm-hmm. a few weeks ago. Yeah. Uh, it was just the same kind of platitudes. Oh, well, we will strike down on this and we'll be very firm. And uh, uh, if anyone knows anything about this, you let us know. The same platitudes, the same thing. And ultimately, there's a, there's a whole cohort of people who exist in the city centre doing what they want with absolutely no fear of any kind of yeah, it should be said. By, it should, should be said by the way. This guy's in hospital with critical injuries after having been attacked by three people. That like you don't get critical injuries from three people without a sustained beating. Like th- this, this was an assault that obviously went on for three, four minutes. In the life changing injuries, life changing yeah. injuries. Um, no witnesses apparently intervened, and the guardy were not on the scene, and no suspects had been either identified or arrested, or at least publicly identified, and certainly not arrested. Um, so it's a failure of policing as well, a, a, like a fundamental failure of policing. Um, you can't obviously stop somebody throwing a punch. I mean, a guardy can't be everywhere at all, all times, but this, this, by all accounts, was not a, you know, a, a, a one punch incident. This went on for a while, and. But also a lot of the stuff before John would have been, you know, like two parties engaging in a fight, both drinking, whatever. These are two incidents in the last couple of weeks where absolutely unprovoked attacks by a group of people on one individual. That's mm-hmm. different. That's not, I go into a bar that's pretty rough for a nightclub. I have a load of drink. You're, you're another woman. You have a load of drink. I think you're looking at my boyfriend. The two of us end up pulling the hair off each other on the street outside. That's not not saying that that's not, has it, uh, not unpleasant in and of itself, but it's not the same as a gang of people attacking someone, you know, some like bite, a gang of people biting and attacking someone on their own. These are different. Yeah. This is different. It's nice and living it, dead stuff, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and 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 again, hand wringing and isn't it terrible? And you know, the minister for justice and the Taoiseach at the at the moment are both supposed to be members of the so called Law and Order Party, which is just a laugh. Bring back the blue shirts. Um, but more <laughs> than that, more than that, um, like it, it strikes me that even if you take the Law and Order thing out, out of it, I mean, Dublin City Centre, um, where. Where have all the sort of prestige shops and stores gone? Like, the, 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 there's there's nothing to take you in there anymore. I mean, all, all of the stuff that I mean, apart from maybe Grafton Street, but even there, Grafton Street has lost a lot of a lot of sort of shop. Every, it, 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 this we've had this strategy, or whether it's a strategy or whether it's been passively allowed, of all the big retailers and businesses and draw, draws moving out to Dundrum, moving out to Liffey Valley, moving out to other shopping centres, and. The end result is that the it, the city centre is no longer sort of a hive of sort of day to day bustling commerce. Um, yeah. There's nothing really to draw you in there, except if you're passing through it or maybe going to a football match or a political protest or something. Um, but that's by design. Like that's been, you know, the city centre has become so unbelievably unpleasant to go into, especially if you're coming from the north side of Dublin. That every single road, every time you go in, there's a new problem. Yeah, our new road change. Some things become changed from one way to another way. And, mm-hmm. you know, the truth of the matter is, John, that like, uh, so for example, if you take me, like I have three children. One is one, so she's at home with me. The other two are in, in school, or they they both will be in school from September, but they've been in Mont- one in Montessori, one in school up until now. And like if I'm going in, like let's say, for example, in the lead up to Christmas, and I want to fly into town, get some stuff, you know, from for them for Christmas that I don't want them to see or whatever. 
I'm simply not going to get the dirt in and then try and manage a buggy and Mm -hmm. big boxes of whatever toys or whatever back. I'm not going to. And, uh, you know, that's it. And I won't make it back in time to collect them from school, yada, yada, yada. And so what ends up happening is that people like me just stop going into town and start going to Blanchetown and Swords and places like that. Still in my car, by the way. But, you know, like it's been designed to squeeze because they don't want people to drive in there. And I'm all for bikes and I'm all for public transport if it suits you. But it doesn't suit everyone. And what that means is that the city centre becomes a place where people, myself included, go in there to socialise at night time and barely ever go in for any shops or anything because it's honestly it's just like coming from the north side of town across the roundabout ways you have to go you know up by marion square back down baggett street around onto stevens it's absurd it's absolutely absurd and it used to take i used to be able to in low peak traffic come from malahide get into town in half an hour and i said to keith a while ago i said you know i'm really noticing that it takes an hour now there's nothing to do with the traffic it's to do with the rerouting and the changing mm-hmm. and they do it on purpose they admit it it's the green agenda they want to discourage yeah. you from using your car but they, you they know. want to drive cars out of the city center and as a result yeah. they're taking people out of the city center yeah yeah, um, yeah. and they, they've been left with a city center that is full um and, and this is not an exaggeration i mean it is full of the kind of people who are using methadone clinic because there are nine of them in the city center and there are none in the residential areas and we have consciously um made the city center an unpleasant place for the kind of you know Irish people who might make it a more pleasant place and we've made it a haven for the kind of Irish people who sadly make sometimes through no fault of their own um, but sometimes very much through fault of their own make places an unpleasant place to be um, and that but, is a, what, but a in fairness John in fairness though like when would when would what area would accept a methadone thing? do you know what I mean like this is the next thing like we're we're in NIMBY state so like everyone would just go, no, we're not having a methadone clinic in our area. Yeah, and that's the reason why they're all in the city centre, by the way, um, because yeah. they're they're terrified to put them anywhere else. But um, you know, the whole other conversation, my view would be that if you're getting methadone, um, you, the condition on that should be that you're in a facility. You, you should be in a you should be in a specific facility. You know, if you want to invest in that, fine. But but I think that's you know there there is no point handing people out methadone and then saying go back onto the streets there and come back to us tomorrow for your next dose of methadone. That doesn't seem to me to be a healthy or respectful way to treat people in the first instance. I don't think it's the safest way to deal with the public. Um, I I I just don't think it's a good idea to have all these people wandering around spaced out on methadone in the city centre. I think it's a bad public. Well, obviously not. Obviously not. But. I, I I also think that like during COVID, um, because I know a couple of people who live in the city centre and they, you know, when when the streets were empty, there was a there was definitely a kind of a a disimprovement to say the least in the level of people drug addicts who were around because they weren't obviously adhering to any kind of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, self isolating or whatever the hell we were doing, and uh, so it's disimproved significantly, and. I don't know. I mean, at the moment, you know, because of the dollar or whatever, like I've noticed a huge amount of American tourists around the city centre and the price of hotel because they're doing so well. Like they're thank God they're they're attending our city and paying those astronomical prices for hotel rooms. And like word gets round and like the last thing you want is for Dublin to start getting a reputation of being a place that tourists shouldn't go to. No, it's going to get that reputation. Like, it's, it's definitely going to get that reputation. Um 
if this kind of thing starts happening. But even talked about before being in other cities in Europe uh, this year, and there's no comparison. And there's nothing to do with the beauty of Dublin. It's not an anti-Irish thing. We have, you know, we're a very beautiful city if we chose to show it off in the right respects, but we don't. Um, mm. We have a, a place that we have mismanaged and allowed to become a bit of a dive. So anyway, to do one of my world-famous transitions, you'll be escaping it. Go presumably somewhere hot on your holidays, but just how hot, Sarah? Where are you heading? Greece. Lord of mercy. Same place. <laughs> do you know, I was watching that news this week and I'll tell you now, I'd be worried. I'd be worried to go anywhere foreign at the moment. I, I hear people are actually being cooked alive in foreign countries. Well, I'll tell you, I'll look at my phone here. So, I go to a place in Crete that um, my um, my auntie's auntie has lived and I've been down there since I'm literally born. My mum has been down there since we was a teenager. It's not very touristy. And uh, we've all been going there for years. And um, your Cretan retreat, my Cretan, Cretan, Cretan retreat. It's twenty right now. It's twenty nine degrees there. So for the next few days, the highs are thirty two, thirty four, thirty five, thirty seven, thirty five, thirty three. Yeah, thirties. Yeah, thirty three, thirty one on Saturday. So between twenty six and thirty one. So very like average kind of for what I've experienced but definitely when I was growing up um, and even like a few years ago when I was pregnant with Connor when I was there it was you know very much not unheard of for it to be 40 41 I'm not convinced so, I'm, I'm watching the news this week Sarah I'm telling you it's unprecedented the world is on fire um, we, we might only have a few months left that's very much been the tone of the news coverage this week so I was looking no, back we- as weather I was, is so weather ahead. is the new COVID it's the new porn it's the new news porn. We love it. Bring back the old every porn, single every, every single radio sh- t- station that I turned on this week when I was in the car was talking about the weather. That was a and joke, was, by the way. I need to bring back the old. Porn. <laughs> I got <laughs> that. <laughs> but um, as I tried to entertain a one year old, a one year old, a four year old, and a six year old, while it pissed rain outside day after day after day, every radio station I turned on talked about the absolute unbelievable heat wave that we're experiencing. Yeah, and, across and, Europe and how the world is ending. This is another example of the Dublin-centric media, Sarah, because I didn't hear a single thing on the radio all week about the rain crisis in Tipperary. Because let me tell you, it has not stopped raining here for about three weeks. Yeah. It has, just been, it has been unbearable. Um, but to get into the bigger point, I was looking back through, through history and recorded temperatures this week because I was interested to see just how unprecedented this stuff is. Do you know in 1808 in England, it didn't rain for seven months in parts of Sussex? And uh, 1540... I think 100,000 people died across the continent at a time where 100,000 was a big, much bigger proportion than it is now of the population uh, from heat exhaustion as temperatures hit 38 degrees centigrade in Paris. Like, I, what I, I never I, understand about that, though, is though, how do they actually have, like, what was the method that they used to measure the mer- temperature? Mercury thermometers have been around for a long time. Now, they were really? once, I think, the, uh, the, the preserve of the uber wealthy. They have been around for a long, long time. I, I don't know if they measured the temperature in 1540. I might have that one wrong because I don't have it. Yeah. But definitely it was it was super hot and they did measure it in the, in the 1800s in, in England and one of the big heat waves in the early part of that century. The, these things are not unprecedented. There's this talk going around at the moment that, you know, oh, this the the hottest year ever. It's not. Um, uh, and it just strikes me that the panic is off the charts. I saw the journal this week running a piece, one of their polls. You know, they do the Oh, grip does them as well. Um, 
they're not scientific, but they do give you a sort of a sense of where your readership's at. And they ask mm-hmm. people, are you experiencing climate anxiety or how anxious are you about the climate? And they had four options ranging from kind of like barely sleep, worrying about the climate to don't think about it at all. And just under half of people um, who read the journal and vote in their poll, which may not be a fair representation of the population, but I think is a fair representation of sort of younger people who I think read the journal more than other outlets, said that they were experiencing climate anxiety. And it strikes me how circular this is, that the media on the one hand says, oh, there's a terrible problem of climate anxiety amongst the youth. And at the same time, they're running stories every other day about how the world is cooking and it's unprecedented and, you know, people will barely be able to survive and there'll be no tomatoes and we'll all end up like Mad Max in a few years unless we all switch off our lights at six o'clock. Um, but it's like, actually horrible as well because it really makes people, like, frightened, like yeah. vulnerable people. And, you know, it was COVID and then it was, like, I have a friend who, you know, um, and, like, granted, I, I, I'm pretty sure as things go, the winter that we just had was fairly mild. All, all things considered um if you were compare comparing it to other years you know there was no big snow certainly not in Dublin anyway mm-hmm. um but that she went into her mother's house in kind of let's say sometime around September October last and her mother was sitting you know at the kitchen table with her coat on an elderly woman and she was like what are you doing and she was like oh, I'm just getting used to you know sitting here in my coat because like I'm not gonna be able to turn the heating on because you know whatever and and the heating bills were really big and blah 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 but like I just think that since COVID in particular, the news has just gotten addicted to scaring the shit out of people about something, whether it's energy crisis or cost of living crisis or now the weather, you know, like there's always something and like it has to be dramatic and terrifying. And okay, you and I like can sit here and talk about it and kind of like you don't listen to RT and I can turn it off and put on a song and just like block it out but some people listen to RTE and these different news things every day and they live a life of fear because of it and I don't think it's right at all it's absolutely extraordinary I mean it, just to give you an example right in the small small town near where I live the worst time to go into the, the shops is half past 11 to half past 12 on a Thursday do you know why why it's because during COVID I don't know if you remember this um there was oh, this kind of time. there was a time for older people to go and shop in safety when the young and the infected would stay out of the shops, <laughs> um, and older people could could go and get their groceries and wear their masks and everything, mm. and that's still happening. Um, the, yeah, uh, sure. You, I, up until recently, they had radio ads. I heard one one day saying, you know, it's okay to come out, and you know, like if you're you know, it's time to come out and socialize again, this kind of thing. And I was like, that ad exists because you guys scared the bejesus out of people. They're afraid to come out still. The, uh, like, yeah, yeah, it, it's incredible. I, I know somebody who, this is a bit like my aunt's brother's cousin told me, right? Um, my aunt's brother's cousin would be, uh, might be circular. But um, <laughs> in any case, it's a bit sort of like friend of a friend told me. But, in, in in one case, and I, I believe this, it's reliable information, somebody who runs a bingo night for older people in the south of the country said that post-COVID attendances have had, that there's still old people, and by the way, talk to, talk to any Catholic priests in the country, they're, like mass attendances in large parts of the country have simply never recovered because people got used to watching mass online and not going out because it was a bit dangerous, and they, don't go, they haven't gone back, and they haven't gone back to bingo, and some of them are still doing their shopping at the COVID time of the week, 
because either they got into the habit of doing these things, which I don't think is particularly healthy because socializing is good, um, yeah. or in other cases, they're still too scared. Um, and I think it's I think it's much more the latter. I think there are a lot of people who are still too scared. And all they're getting is this diet of constant fear um, all the time from the. And also from, like that, those kind of like that kind of isolation and these kind of things actually like are risk factors for dementia and things like that. Like if you don't see enough people and you're isolated and you're alone, it's worse mm-hmm. for you. Like the, there's health implications for that. And I just think it's really sad and now while you're sitting at home looking out at the rain worrying about the fact that it's 42 degrees in in Seville like yeah uh, and and the worst bit about about it all is like the very people who we were told we were saving during lockdown you know you and me sort of young healthy low COVID risk factor we were told put our lives on hold protect the elderly the elderly are the most important people in society to have you protected and I agree with that I think it's so important Mm. you know if you, you you can't play with people's lives if there's a chance you can infect somebody you should be responsible i skipped one wedding that i really regret skipping during covid um i wish i hadn't skipped it um but, but at the time i thought it was the right thing to do it was very early on um but um now those same old people who are supposed to be protecting a lot of them are too terrified to get back out no one cares no one gives a shit same people we were supposed to be protecting we've actually put in a prison of fear and no one gives a crap um, I think that says so much about sort of how fake a lot of it was, how, how a lot of it was about how good we are and not how much we actually value the people we're supposed to protect. Oh, well, you just coined a phrase there. Now, you just stumbled onto like a kind of a, a nugget of the zeitgeist that could spread its limbs into multiple other issues. That what's more important is that you virtue signal about how morally superior you are as opposed to actually believing in what you're doing or saying. Oh, John, <laughs> calm down. You might have just figured out the world's problem right there. I know. I'm an original thinker, Sarah. I've always, I've always been, you know, sometimes I scare myself with the new ideas I come up with. But I think it's, you know, I think it's not a new idea, but I think it's very clear in, in retrospect to me that, that uh, that's so, so much of, of that stuff. Um, no, and, and it was hard to see. It was hard to see at the time. Like, I know people who died of COVID. Like, you know, like, and, and one in particular, you know, a very good friend of my dad's and mine, and uh, the father and the uncle of close female friends of mine, you know, he died of COVID. He was a healthy man in his early 60s, um, non-drinker, non-smoker in the yard. And he just was one of those people who just, he died. And and it it's still catastrophic for his family. And, and so, you know, there was, there was elements to the COVID thing. Like I was watching um, last night, actually, um, a documentary about... Um, you know, remember this thing in Italy, um, Meredith Kircher, the murder of Meredith Kircher. You and love that stuff. A, I love that shit. But I, I do, I do. This is the one, like, wasn't there like a weird Amanda sex Knox. thing? Yeah. Amanda Knox. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was her the and the boys. decided, yeah, that she was a pervert and that made it all interesting. But really the truth is that she just got murdered by this other guy. But anyway, it was a, it was a documentary about really more because Amanda Knox became the story and Meredith Kircher was the victim and this, you know, she kind of got lost in the whole thing, but it was a, more of a documentary leaning about her and about, you know, who she was and uh, the story. But actually the, the thing that kind of struck me about it is that in the last two years, both of Meredith Kircher's parents have died and um, her mother died of COVID uh, in the first phase of COVID. And then her dad was, it seems uh, 
it's not clear, but it looks like he was killed by a hit and run um, a couple, four months later or something. Like, but but there's these random, my point is that like, I was like, oh God, like, you know, there was people who died of COVID that in that time, like if Meredith Kircher's mother had died in a non-COVID time, you would have heard about it. Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that people just kind of like died and, you know, you, you know, you never heard about it because there was so, so much going on. So people did die and there was, there was for a, a period, certainly in the, in the first lockdown, a, a time to be afraid. But mm-hmm. then it just became Scareburn and, you know, certainly in Ireland and in other countries, it wasn't just an Irish thing became kind of addicted to the whole we got real into it that was the problem here we got real into it then it was kind of like you know there was a there was there was an initial feeling that we were doing good and we kind of got so into like doing good we didn't want to stop doing good even when the crisis had long since passed so yeah and then of course we had that you know we can't not mention the the kind of massive virtue signaling thing we had about the the vaccines Um, i think it was maria mains wrote a piece for us this week on grift actually about ryan tuberty because last week he complaining in the doll about what it was like to be being cancelled and she went back and pulled up some of his quotes from the vaccination time where he was like if somebody you know is unvaccinated do not invite them to your wedding tell them they are not welcome uh, like that's the kind of insanity that we were dealing with then and i think a lot of people still believe that by the way i don't think i don't think it's abated entirely but like we did go a bit mad no we did i mean look like there was two sides like i know somebody a couple of people who just point point blank refuse to get vaccinated and i'll be honest and say particularly at the time when you had to have a vaccination cert to do anything or go anywhere it was irritating because there was a mm-hmm. couple of things they were trying to organize and this particular person couldn't come because they didn't have a vaccine you know this kind of nonsense and i was just like oh for god's sake like what is this crap so there was definitely you know but i certainly wasn't going around suggesting that these people be you know lynched or whatever like the carry on like you know, Ryan Tuberty was certainly a, a, a anti-vax rabble rouser, and um, everyone in RT was an anti-anti-vax rabble rouser. He wasn't an anti-vax; he was an anti-anti-vaxer rabble rouser. Or, or more, more point, because a lot of people didn't get vaccinated, weren't anti-vax per se. They were just a bit cautious about taking a vaccine that had not been through. I mean, this is just I, I took three of mine, so I'm not I'm not trying to whip up anything, but. Like, yeah, it hadn't it hadn't gone through the rigors of you know a, a normal sort of medication goes through, and they well, were and, and also John like the, this is the thing as well like I I got vaccinated I got vaccinated, um, I got my first dose, I think the trajectory was that I got my first dose, and then I got my my boost by the time the booster was coming I was pregnant, mm-hmm. and um, I was a bit frightened about that I'll be honest I like I think that's kind of normal um and then I ended up getting COVID while I was pregnant quite like I was quite sick mm-hmm. um and that, then the, the kind of narrative then was well you would have been even sicker if you hadn't got the vaccine okay fine fine fair enough but um I did not get my children vaccinated um my kids got COVID when we got COVID and uh both of the boys they would have been three and five at the time they got a temperature for about two hours of an afternoon and that was it. Yeah, and um, that, that that was well documented. It was yeah, well documented. So I, I never bothered getting my kids vaccinated with that. And that's not to say I'm anti-vax, they're vaccinated for other things. And um, my sister is a pediatrician. I, you know, my sister is very pro-vaccine and the kids are 
have extra vaccine in the fa- in the sense that it's not on the scheme, but they're they're all uh, chickenpox vaccinated, uh, just because the strains of of chickenpox can be particularly vicious these days. And my sister's seen a lot of you know different complications mm. associated with chickenpox in the hospital. So, uh, I it's not that I'm anti-vax, but I just didn't bother getting them COVID vaccines. Well, I remember having chickenpox when I was about six, and I, I, I that's how traumatizing it was. I still have a scar on my back from that one scab that I couldn't stop picking. Still there. But you're the same age as me. Do you not think that everyone has one? I have one on the side of my face, on the right <laughs> side of my face, just near my ear. There's like a hole. It's my, it's my, it's my pock mark. Does everyone who's of a certain age not just have at least one? I don't know. It's never come up in conversation. I, I suspect probably mine is in the small of my back, so no one ever sees it. Text in uh, your photos, guys. <laughs> 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 All right. Um, I should say, by the way, um, on the the vaccine, I got my three vaccines. I got COVID after I got got three vaccines. No, it was it was a decent interval. It might have been three four months after my my third one. I finally got COVID. I think I got. Oh yes, I got COVID last Christmas after I attended a particular event in Dublin city centre. <sighs> it was a super uh, spreader. <laughs> I heard. It was yeah. Literally, um, literally. It was my wedding, and uh, uh, every single person at it, except myself and Keith, got some kind of COVID or flu or something. Well, I I was I was half dead for ten days. So by the standards of the, if I didn't get vaccinated, I would probably be dead. Um, of course, the people who don't believe that, I'm not sure I believe it myself. But yeah, I got three vaccines. I eventually got COVID, and it was the worst dose I've had in a very very long time. Yeah, it's horrible. Anyway, before we go, I want to talk uh, briefly about the state of the National Children's Hospital. It's a bit of a boring economic story, but just run through the numbers, folks. By the way, John, I'm really disappointed in you because I said that my sister works, was a paediatrician and worked in the hospital, and I was fully expecting you to use one of your classic segues there, jump in and go, oh, children, speaking of children's hospital, then you missed it. I did. I missed it. I missed it. My apologies uh, to you oh, and indeed your lovely sister. But uh, anyway... National Children's Hospital, where your sister may one day end up working uh, when she's close to retirement, um, when it finally gets built. Um, started off in 2013, the initial budget was 800 million euros. Um, it is now, it was supposed to be built by 2018, I think, initially. Uh, then that was revised back to a cost of one and a half billion and an opening date of 2023. It is now hitting two and a half billion for final costs. Um, and will open at the earliest 2025, though this week we were told they actually can't be sure when it'll open. When it does open... Or how much it will be. Or how much it will or be. Or how much it will be. If and when it does open, it will be the most expensive health facility built in all of human history, anywhere in the world, any time in history. No health facility will have cost more than this. It's a... I nearly said a bad word. It's a fecking fiasco um, on, on an unprecedented scale nationally we've never had a, a mess this big um sarah i was thinking this week I, I look at the health service for for kids and i don't have kids myself but if i had a kid with scoliosis which is an awful awful illness that you yeah. wouldn't wish on the devil um yeah. the waiting list for surgery in Ireland for kids with that ailment is five years and we're pouring two and a half billion into this children's hospital and i've been pouring money hand over fist into it for over a decade at this stage. Um, and nobody ever stopped to say, well, hang on a second, mightn't this money be better spent improving the services we already have? Like, is it a fiasco? Or is there any case? What's the what's the case for the defense on it, if there is one? Maybe that's not well, a fair question. It's funny, I no, it's funny. I've had this debate with somebody close to me who was, you know, um, advocating for it and saying that it's, you know, will be, you know, quite incredible and the most state of the art 
possible you've ever seen and it'll be you know insanely good and, and and great so i mean i suppose there's an argument to be made that it would be the best of the best and you know just just wait you'll see i mean okay fine but i don't think that that's really the thing that gets you know that that pisses people off i think it's just it's the it's the way in which large capital projects are managed in ireland and the waste and you know like People on that project continue to be paid when they weren't working during COVID. Um, you know, no doubt, especially in the in the aftermath of some of the RTE stuff, no doubt that eventually there, like there's journalists right now, you know, researching stories about how money is being spent on that project and how it's gotten so out of control. The 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 accountability and the fact that somebody would, you know, summon up all of the audacity they have in their body to go onto the radio and say that they don't know when the project will be over and they don't know how much it will cost. That, like, laissez-faire attitude to spending and capital pro- uh, on capital projects wouldn't exist in the private sector and just doesn't happen. Um, mm-hmm. Well, I'm sure it does happen in other countries in the world. I can't speak for all of them, obviously, but it's maddening. And, you know, you like, if, if, if there was a, pro- a private organization managing a project at this scale or half this scale or a quarter of this scale and these kind of questions weren't able to be answered with the opening of a spreadsheet with a bottom line figure and somebody keeping their finger on the pulse of exactly what was going where and who to whom and 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 for how long that project would be immediately paused and there'd be an investigation and we just Mm -hmm. accept it we just accept it it's just like oh you know well you know and maybe it will be great and i hope it is great i hope it is great because you know we need a really good you know children's hospital and as you say there's lots of children with various illnesses who've been waiting inordinate amounts of time for for treatment but you know 2025 you said like my gut like if i had to p- pluck a finger a figure out of the air you know, listening to what I listen to on the radio and a couple of conversations. If you don't know how much more it's going to cost, to me that trans having worked in large capital projects myself, to me that translate is you don't know how long it's going to take, you don't know how much it's going to cost. And that to me feels like 2025 plus three minimum. Yeah. Like and two two point two point five billion plus possibly another five, six hundred million being conserved. But it strikes me the other problem is now that the the people running the project or the people contracted to build it have the government by the short and curlies because of the sunk cost fallacy. Because you can't bring them in and say, right, well, that's it. We're pulling the project. Because you've then, if you're the government, well, you've wasted all the billions that have been spent on it already. So you kind of have to see yeah. it through, which means yeah. that the people building it actually have the government um, have a, a yeah. you know, they've, they've, got a, yeah. they've got a gun to the government's head on this. So yeah, I mean, but now it, you're it, up Shit's Creek with no paddle, no spreadsheet, no accountability, and no n- no plan. As far as I, you can I, see, I, coming back, circling us back to the beginning, and I'm not saying it's all his fault. I wasn't in the room. I wasn't in the meetings, um, and I don't know, but I don't think it helped to have a 28, 29 year old as minister for health for a lot of the period when this was kind of whinging out of control when his instincts, I'm talking about Simon Harris, were to spend his time on TikTok talking about abortion and free contraceptives and, you know, all the other popular with the cool kids thing that he spent his time as minister focusing on. Um, I think yeah. he, he has proven to be a very ineffective minister for health in that respect. I don't think his successor has done much better. Um, and this should be right in, in, in Stephen Donnelly's wheelhouse. I mean, 
He's got a, he's got, what, what's he got from Harvard again? An MB, is it an MBA? He's got some kind of master's in business um, from Harvard. This is the kind of thing that should be right in his wheelhouse, large capital projects. And, you know, on his watch, it's going completely out of control again. And there is no accountability. And one of the reasons there's no accountability is because this is one of those projects in Ireland where at the beginning, everyone, it's like Launch Care with the other big health initiative. Every party supports it. No one said, actually, you know what, maybe there's a better way to spend this money. Maybe a National Children's Hospital that costs more than the original moon landing is a, is a, is a bad idea. Um, they just said, you know, oh, it's, it's, it's for the children, therefore we'd all support it. Therefore, it's very hard to, to bring accountability to the government because they've all got, they all dipped their hands in the paint. Mm. So me. Anyway. Well, we'll leave. see. I mean, I like I had my first child in 2016. I had another one in 2018. Um, and then I had another one last year. And I definitely thought that I, that I would be bringing some of them to this hospital. The 2018 year old is 2018 baby is the one who's had multiple. He's our he's our hospital commissar or whatever. You know, he's our. <laughs> he's our accident prone child and he's been in Tampa Street many times um, but I would say yeah maybe I mean, if you, if you go back earlier go, go back to, to a kid who's three years older than him a child who was born in 2013 when this project was commenced will be at least mm-hmm. 12 years old if it's finished on the most optimistic timeline if it's not if, if it's another three and years for most, that, things, for most things like, like well certainly for certain things 12 years old is cut off for a children's hospital anyway Exactly. So we've got a whole generation of kids. In fact, this was first mooted. People might not know this. The, the National Children's Hospital was first mooted in 1991. That's the first time a government paper advocated the construction of a National Children's Hospital. We would have been able to go. We, we'd have been able to go, yes. Um, <laughs> so there have been multiple generations of children who um, suffered through the existing treatment system with all its failures while the government has been pouring gold and treasure into this white whale. Um, they're like Captain Ahab facing Moby Dick and in the end that didn't work out there we'll leave it there for this week thank you very much for the pleasure of your company as always um, thank you listeners for the pleasure well I, I'll say the pleasure of the listeners cause the company because I don't actually get it but I do get and what Sarah gets as well is all your feedback all your commentary um, some of it good some of it less good mostly good though and we're very grateful for that um, and so as ever I'd ask you to keep listening if you have a friend who you think would be interested in what we have to say or our perspective, do let them know about us because uh, we can't afford to advertise and it would be a bit vain to advertise anyway. Wouldn't Sarah put out an ad going, hey, listen to John and Sarah? Um, <laughs> I wouldn't feel good about that. But we do rely, if you do think people would like it, please please share this uh, podcast with others. Um, if you're on your summer holidays, we hope you enjoy them. Um, but I advise getting off the island to Greece like Sarah is going to do. But aside from that, my friends, until the same time next week, that was once again the week that really was.